Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show, The Classicist. I'm Jack Fowler, the host, the director of the Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic and the author of its new weekly email newsletter, Civil Thoughts. You you can subscribe to it at civilthoughts.com. But who cares about the host? Because we're here to listen to the wisdom of the namesake of the show, Victor Davis Hanson, who is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow at Hillsdale College. Victor is a farmer, military historian, a classicist. He's many things. You'll find just about everything he does at victorhanson.com. That's Hanson, S-O-N.com. More on that in a little bit. Today on The Classicist, we are recording on Friday, September 17th. We will be talking about Victor's writings in American Greatness. And well, we had elections in California this past week. So Victor's take on the recall and also a little bit about shame, a little bit about power, but let's listen to this important message first. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler. Victor, you've uh, written, as you do every week for American Greatness, you write a longer essay and uh, then a, a shorter piece. But let's take on the big essay you've written. It's titled woke the evil of our age. And here's something you wrote in that piece. You wrote, we should be worried about our own woke pandemic. If you consider the history of France, Russia, and China, that's what you're writing about. Most of these bloodbaths started out with the supposedly noble idea of delivering social justice, equity, and fairness before they went deadly and feral. Victor, the Chicoms, you say, or I say the Chicoms, they could not have conceived something so harmful for America as woke. Would you elaborate on the main theme of this essay? Well, if you wanted to weaken the United States economically, politically, culturally, socially, militarily, then you would try to divide it because it's the only multiracial uh, democracy, really, that has not relied on coercion. To make, I mean, Brazil and India have much le- more greater levels of coercion to make people get along in a consensual society, and they're not fully consensual like we are. And more importantly, as we talked about earlier, the usual prescription 
for keeping diverse peoples together in one empire or, or nation is death and punishment. This is what the Soviets did with different minorities. This is what the Ottomans did. This is what the Romans did. We don't do that. And so you have to have a natural unity, and that means each tribal group gives up their primary identity to a greater civic brotherhood, and we're destroying that. 50, 60 years after the Civil Rights Movement, I don't know what happened to us, but you know, we had been doing enormously well. We had record low minority unemployment. We had class was increasingly distinct from race. The black lower and middle classes had made more wage gains than the white lower middle class the last three years. I think in terms of ethnic minorities, most of them were Asian, but there were 12 or 13 that had higher per capita income than whites. 60% of all college students were women. And so all of a sudden these people came in after the George Floyd and they said, you know what? We've never had an agenda that anybody wanted. Nobody wants a new green deal. Nobody wants critical race theory. Nobody wants new monetary theory, but damn it, we've got an opportunity. So we're going to create a complete fable. And that is we've got to tear the country down because it was flawed at its so-called 1776 beginning, which it really was 1619, they tell us. And it's been racist ever since, and we're just going to torch it. And that's what they were doing. And they don't tell us why people are falling off the wheels on an Afghan plane to get here or people are sitting in feces right now under a bridge so they can become an American because it's supposedly a toxic white place. But what I'm getting at is that uh, this is a year zero revolution, Jack, where people mm -hmm. want to recreate the date America was founded. They want to destroy the iconic statuary of America, Thomas Jefferson, Lincoln, everybody else. They want to destroy destroy the American narrative. They want to go after the national anthem, God bless America, you name it. Any reference to anything positive about the United States, they want to destroy. And they want to start over with what? The great legacy of socialism or communism throughout world history, it's been another failure. But that's taking them at their word, that they're sincere. If you were going to be a cynic, and you thought they're not sincere, they're just like the bloated people on the dais at a May Day parade in the late Soviet Union when they were all going out to their dockers on the Crimea. You know, they had six cars and all of this stuff. And when you look at AOC and this $35,000 dress, or you look at Mark Zuckerberg's 50,000 square foot home, or you look at Nancy Pelosi, Gavin Newsom, Chuck Schumer, all variously breaking their own codes about masking and social distancing and quarantine, then you're cynical. They just want power. And you know, that's not an exaggeration. When you look at the architects of the woke movement, Miss uh, Patrice Quellars is now living in Topolga Canyon in her fourth home surrounded by a $35,000 fence. Professor Kendi is charging us, as we said one time, $20,000 for his wisdom. And uh, AOC apparently likes $35,000 dresses. And Ta-Nehisi Coates, he was the one, he was the godhead of the, you know, he was the brilliant writer. Well, he writes comic books about blacks now, and he's trying to turn those comic books into uh, movies. More power to him. That's the capitalist way. But these are not Marxists. They're not street organizers. They're not poor people. These are people who really want to fight with the ruling classes to, you know, get more money. So the BLM movement is run by people, as I said last time, on the Lido deck, and they want the better chairs. 
and the white establishment is willing to give them some chairs. But this is really an intramural fight among wealthy, wealthy people who are trying to leverage each other. And unfortunately, the fallout affects all of us. I wish they'd just go in a room and say, you know what? We're going to give you this many commercials. We're going to give you this many title roles and Hollywood movies. We're going to give you this many admissions, and we'll just work it out between us. But they don't. They, they affect everybody. So some guy on a forklift, as I said, in Bakersfield has never had any privilege. His kid gets straight A's. He can get in anywhere. He won't get in anywhere because he's a white male. So I'm being but, cynical, but that's what it you is. Know, you say that forklift operator, actually in this piece in American Greatness, you wrote, uh, a trucker from Boise has more in common with a Mexican-American sheriff in Modesto than he does with a woke techie in Menlo Park. I totally agree with that, of course. But do you believe that the truck driver in Boise is starting to think that way? Like, yeah, I, you know, I've got more in common with that Mexican so. uh, hardware and, and vice versa. Are there Mexican Americans who are thinking like, yeah, you know, these guys are my probably as much simpatico between us more than, with me, with the trucker than there is with AOC. Well, you know, I don't know about exit polls. I, I have my doubts about them, but in this failed recall effort, about 42% of so-called Latinos or Hispanics revealed that they voted recall. And it was just about the same as the white number. Both minorities, most Latinos, most whites voted not to recall. But the point is, there's no longer a distinction based on race, either in the approval or the rejection of Gavin Newsom. In the case of Latinos and Blacks, that's new, because usually they were predictably overwhelmingly democratic or liberal or progressive. That's not true anymore, especially with Hispanic males. When you look at the number of black males and Hispanic males who voted to recall them, it's pretty, it's getting very high. And so, yeah, I think that's encouraging because race is becoming more incidental the way it should. And I think a lot of people, let's be frank, this is, this is what we're supposed to do, Jack, is tell yes. you. Yeah. You and I have navigated a lot of our lives you and, and the punditry and magazines and opinion making and me in academia. And there is a certain subset of a bicoastal white elite who feels that they deserve certain exemptions and prerogatives based on their zip code or who their parents were or where they Absolutely. went. Absolutely. And they have a certain bearing about them, mm-hmm. their accent, their stature, the way they look at people. And, for a lot of people, poor whites, Hispanic, they're not easy people to get along with. When I sent minority students, I sent over 50 of them in 21 years to the Ivy League and Stanford, Berkeley, their complaint was never they can't do the work. It was always that the culture, the culture was antithetical to them and that the people thought they were better than they. I know some of it was envy, some of it was insecurity, that's normal. But there's something about this self-righteous puritanical culture that has lost its god so you could you could excuse it maybe during the abolitions period because it was a great cause you know abolition and they were using religious zeal but when they lost their god they have created new deities and you know it's global warming critical race theory and they have the same zealousness that you know you're going to be you're going to be perfect or you're no good and we're going to be self-improvement and you got to do this and you got to wear that mask and, you know, they have no compassion. They have passion, but no compassion. And they're a really hard group of people. I spent most of my life around 
been at Stanford University when I was a student, visiting professor at various places and now at the Hoover Institution and having to be on the Stanford campus. And boy, they're not an easy group to get along with and they're, they're assumed errors. Right. But I think a lot of Mexican-American people, to take one example, don't like them. And they feel they, they look down upon them and they do. And they talk about all this cosmic justice. And then when they look at their lives, they think, hmm, they want us to be maids. They want us to cut their lawns. They want us to cook their food. But they do not want to put their kids in the public schools with us. They do not want to go to a PTA meeting with us. They don't want to go out to dinner with us. We don't associate with them. Right. And we've talked I'm, about that before. It's a psychological yeah. medieval idea of tenets or indulgences or something. Well. It's also an evil. Not everyone who listens to this podcast actually goes to American Greatness and reads the pieces. I do encourage our listeners to do that. But towards the end of this essay, you wrote, so what is truly evil is the current woke trademark of loud, privileged whites who scapegoat the losers in the globalist game as racist or in the Obama, Hillary Clinton, Biden patois of clingers, deplorables, irredeemables, dregs, chumps, mostly out of elite condescension, virtue signaling guilt, and pathetic contextualizing their own privilege by projecting their unearned status onto the supposedly distant cultural losers. A really powerful uh, sentence there, uh, Victor. Um, I think it speaks for itself. If you want to say anything more about it, say so. Otherwise, we we will uh, move on to the next topic. That's what California is about, Jack. So that that was a kind of a wordy or cumbersome description of what's actually happening in California. People who live in 70 degree weather on the coast tell us that we're going to pay 27 cents at peak hours when it's 105 here and poor people can't afford air conditioning. Or they tell us that we're going to pay 450 a gallon. I just got back multi-state speaking and I can tell you that gas is about $3 a gallon here. It's, I just filled up yesterday. It was 480. And people who are poor and have to drive, you know, from Bakersfield to Porterville or from Fresno to Visalia, that's not like going to the Silicon Valley uh, Google campus and going to downtown Menlo Park. And so that affects other people themselves. The people who say we just have to trust the teachers union and we just have the state board of education, you know, transgender, their kids are not subject to that. They're in Sacred Heart. They're in Castilea. They're in the Harker School. They're in all of these private schools. They are. They're sprouting up like weeds all over Silicon Valley. So what I'm getting at is that I don't know where it is. It's like royalty or French aristocracy, Robespierre brothers, you know, upper middle class play acting. Or maybe it's Marie Antoinette in a peasant costume at Versailles and acting like she's out in the French Normandy countryside. But what, what I'm getting at is these people talk down to people and yet, as we saw from Pelosi in her ice cream freezer and her hairdresser or Newsom at the French Laundry or Chuck Schumer yesterday sneezing out loud or expectorating or whatever he was doing without a mask, yeah. they feel that they are privileged. And as, arist- as part of the aristocracy or the clerisy, they feel that they should not be subject to the rules they impose on us. And that's what this is about. Yeah, I think when they're accused of being hypocritical, doesn't register because they're not in their minds that they're entitled to do whatever the hell they want to do. They don't right? feel that, that. No, they don't. You're absolutely right. They think, what? You mean me with a Harvard degree? Me with a resume like this? Me and this zip code? 
me with Buffy and Jody, these super kids that have been branded with every type of award. And uh, my kids, well, I have a daughter at Stanford. I've got a daughter at Yale. Me? Me? Of course I am. I'm hypocritical. Of course, because this is what I, I worked at. This is what I deserve. And, you know, I don't want to be around with a deplorable and irredeemable, a chump, a drags, a clinger. I don't want to be near those people. And you can see it. Every once in a while, you'll be somewhere. And I, you know, when you're with these people and somebody from the working class comes into an elevator where you're there on a repairman, they don't feel comfortable. They're either patronizing or sneering. Yeah. And that's not what America was about. What Tocqueville said, what made this country work and what foreign observers, John de Crave Corps, said the same thing. And he was an American citizen, finally, is that we had an independent, autonomous, middle class, at that time yeomanry, but now the truck driver, the small business person, the guy that owns the 7-Eleven. This is what America is about. It's not a bunch of people who get stamped with a bunch of letters after their names and think they can talk down to people. Boy, you really saw it during COVID. If there was justice in the world, given all the things that Anthony did when he was engaged in funding gainers and denied that under oath and can't come up with a coherent description of a mask or a coherent description of herd immunity or a coherent description of the origins of, and then funneled me, money to Peter, whatever, Drezak, and he was on the investigative committee of investigating himself, essentially. That's what these people are doing. Where have you shown that you're superior in your judgment to Joe Smith, who drives a long-haul truck? You're not, because you're all over the map. And the same is true of the rest of them. And that is, you know, that's LeBron James. That's General Milley. That's the head of American Airlines. That's the head of Delta. They all want to tell us how we should act and behave. And yet when we say to them, well, where's your accountability? Well, Victor, you just talked about Tocqueville and the centrality of then an emerging middle class, but maybe we should veer off a little bit here because uh, I think this is a theme of your forthcoming book, you know, The Dying Citizen, which I forget if I mentioned this earlier in the in the program, but I want to encourage our listeners to go to victorhanson.com and subscribe to it because that way you can access much of the original content that Victor writes. It's only readable there, nowhere else. There is a premium service. It's very affordable. Also, there's the link to Buying the Dying Citizen, which comes out in about three weeks, October 5th. But Victor, there is a clear dot connection between the dying of citizenship in America and the health and well-being of the middle class, is there not? Well, all indicators suggest there is. We had 12 years until the hated Donald Trump stopped it of continual erosion of middle-class wages until 2017-18. For the first time in 12 years, we started to see you know, an increase. And as I said earlier, most people, 50% of Americans die with about $10,000 in net worth and with credit card debt. And we have $1.7 trillion in aggregate student debt. And that didn't go for necessarily engineering degrees that are going to pay well. Right. So you look at home ownership, it's starting to go down again. You look at the age of people get married, it's going down. The age of people buy a house, it's going down. The age of people having a first child going down. It all reflects a deep pessimism of the middle class. You look at suicides, opiate addiction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because we're not 
not with, with the middle class. So what Joe Biden and the left is doing is say, we're for the middle class. We're going to tax the wealthy. Well, I don't think they're really going to tax Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos. They're going to tax the doctor who works all day in the emergency room. Or they're going to go after some businessman who's trying to feed millions of people on 100 acres or 500 acres of oranges or almonds or grapes or something. But they're not going to go after the very wealthy. And they're not worried about the middle class. I know they're not worried because they never say we're going to make affordable housing and actually do it. They're not going to deregulate to make housing affordable. They're not going to frack and horizontal drill. We cut back by 3 million barrels to let people have affordable energy. They're not going to go up there and say, we're going to harvest 60 million trees in California and revitalize the timber industry, A, to prevent forest fires that pollute the skies where your children breathe, and B, so you can go in there and buy that four by eight sheet of plywood without paying $90. They're not going to do that because they don't care. And uh, that's what, What's happened with this elite? They're the most selfish group of people. This country, it's so wonderful, produced this echelon, this bi-coastal globalized elite. They just have this sense of entitlement, and they're not worried about the middle class or the poor. And, you know, they'll step over feces and needles on their way to the Pacific Heights mansion. And bet you better not say anything about cleaning those homeless up. They are saintly people. Just keep them away from me. And you middle class people... If you can't avoid them, that's your problem. You didn't make enough money. Victor, it's maybe unfair to uh, label you as one of the great political commentators in America. I've always felt that. I think in 2016, no one was a better political analyst than you were. And I think that talent carries on, whether you want to believe it or not. But put on your political hat, if you don't mind, and talk about the recall election. Do you think it was winnable at any point? If it was winnable, how did it go off the rails? A number of people have said last week, one of the problems was uh, the election became about Larry Elder. And if it had any chance of winning, all focus had to be on Gavin Newsom. I look at it in the same way as I did the 2020 presidential election, not in terms of voter fraud, but in the terms that people were not expecting what the left was going to do. And by that, I mean, why Donald Trump was having these huge rallies and everybody looked at them, 50,000 people. Then they looked at Joe Biden and they saw what, 50 cars honking at like a outdoor movie set. And, right. thought, and then the guy with a brain freeze, they thought, this is going to be a no brainer. But what they didn't realize that behind the scenes, Silicon Valley was funneling five, six, seven hundred million dollars in very scientifically to pre-selected precincts to get out the vote in a selective manner, to add to the uh, precinct workers, which is illegal to selectively give money to influence election. And they had been systematically in March and April earlier that year, changing the voting laws, whether it was lack, no need to substantiate your address or your full name or your signature or a postmark date. They were all lax. And when you saw that the error rate went, as I said, from a normal point five percent to point four, that was where the election was won. In the case of California, Larry Elder announced, then it was, let's look at Davin Newsom. And Larry Elder started to say things. Do you want 60 million trees dead in the Sierra and all those carbon emissions released when they inevitably go up in smoke when you have no timber industry that can use them? Do you really want to ban nuclear power and natural gas 
and depend on wind and solar if you don't, don't have any money. You really, really want to not have built a reservoir since 1983, and yet two-thirds of the population live where one-third of the precipitation is. You don't believe in water transfers? Well, then what are you going to do? He asked, started to ask those questions, and then, bam, the polls started to show it. It was almost dead even or within the margin of error. And everybody was saying, wow, Larry Elder has galvanized the race. He's made it about Gavin Newsom. And I thought to myself, uh, there's going to be a big IED go off funded by Silicon Valley. And sure mm-hmm. enough, they waited and waited. And then suddenly the Netflix, the Zuckerberg, they just poured in $75, $80 million. And for the last 10 days, you didn't hear about anything about Gavin Newsom. He never said to you, as I said earlier, I expanded the 99 freeway to six lanes. He didn't say that because he didn't, he not only didn't do it, he didn't want to do it. And he never said, I got affordable housing. He didn't do it because he didn't do it because he didn't want to do it. He never said, I cleaned out the forest. So all it was then was Larry Elder is Donald Trump. And he got his surrogates, LA Times. He's the face of white supremacy. Think how absurd that is. He created such a, and I'm using the terms of the left now, a hate climate, a climate of hate that some crazy white woman, I don't know if she's Antifa or protest. She really thought it was okay to wear a gorilla mask and walk up to a black man and throw an egg at him because she understood the climate had been created where the social media people and the Los Angeles Times and the electric wouldn't say a word. That would not be a hate crime. If that person had been Barack Obama and some guy got out of a semi-truck and did that, he would be in jail right now, sitting just like the January 6th people. And so that's what happened. And you could see it coming. The election was not about Gavin Newsom. It was Larry Elder is Donald Trump, and he's a Uncle Tom sellout, and he's dangerous, and he's going to destroy your coastal livelihood. That's what they said. And for a guy who came in late into the race and never run before and was poorly funded, you knew what the script was going to be. And people would ask me the last two weeks, do you think he's going to win? I Off the record, I didn't want to say it publicly, because I think he's going to lose. And I said to people, as soon as he loses, they're going to blame Larry Elder. They're going to say, if he just hadn't gotten in the race, we had these wonderful candidates, mm-hmm. Faulkner and Cox. Well, Cox had run and, and crashed and burned. And the mayor, from right. the ex-mayor, was a very nice guy with good ideas and about as charismatic as Mitt Romney. Right. And so that's where we are. And okay. people get what they deserve in a democracy. If they want this state to continue, then they're going to get it. But as I said earlier, 43% of Hispanics and over 50% of Hispanic males said, not this pig anymore. I'm not going to do it. Okay. Well, we have a little bit of time left. I want to encourage our listeners to also visit American Greatness to check out the other piece you wrote this past week. Science is dying. Superstition disguised as morality is returning. And we all will soon become poorer, angrier, and more divided. If you could briefly tell us about this piece, and then we're going to talk a little bit about shame to wrap up the show. Well, very quickly, think about what science is. We had Dr. Bandy Yee from uh, Yale who telediagnosed Donald Trump, which is contrary to the American Psychiatric Association. Right. because they did that with Goldwater and they said never again. But nonetheless, she said she declared that he was not only crazy, but he was in need of an intervention. Not Nobody objected to that. Think of the scientific methodology there. 
you just look at somebody from a distance and said, well, I've taken his pulse. I know about his medication history. I know about his general well-off. He's taken a Montreal assessment test, which he had not taken yet. And he's crazy. And he's, so that was a perversion of science. Everybody knew that. When Anthony Fauci kept saying mask, herd immunity, da, da, da. When the WHO said travel bans don't work, it's racist. That was a perversion of science. New monetary theory, the idea that you don't have to balance ever expenditures and revenue, and the more money you print, the more prosperity, that is completely a bankrupt sort of anti-gravity theory. And critical race theory that you can be hate to stop hatred, you can be racist to stop hatred, that is completely insane. Critical legal theory that all laws don't reflect natural realities, but they're just the construct of a white people in power that arbitrarily de determines that if you go into a store and take things off the shelf, that's theft because the wealthy people don't do that. That's crazy. And I went down through the line of all these theories and practices and the COVID uh, idea. And, you know, I, I said something, and I think other people had remarked on this as well. Think of where we are to finish about COVID. We know now that despite all of the objections and disagreements that quote unquote science from people, you know, from Stanford University to John Hopkins have said that if you get COVID and you develop antibodies, more likely than not, you're going to have a longer and more definitive immunity than you will if you got something like I did or you did the shot. That's a fact. And yet this government pseudoscientific as it is, is saying that is not enough. If you have had COVID, you are going to have to get a shot, even though that people that have had COVID with antibodies, when they're subject to artificial antibodies, have a higher rate of side effects, no matter. And so what would be the antithesis, Jack? It would be to say, hey, everybody, all you people like Victor Hansen that got vaccinated, that's not very good compared to natural immunity. And the government wants you to have both. So, Victor, just like people who've had COVID have to get a vaccination, we want you to go out, take that mask off and mingle so you get COVID. And that way you have double protection. That's what they're saying. That's the logical trajectory of their insanity. And so when you add all of that up and then you think, well, what are they doing? What are they doing? And it's one of these moments where mass hysteria and madness have taken over. It's the Satan witch trial. It's the McCarthy period. It's the final expression of Me Too, where it's just like a taking some kind of wild fish and throwing them on the pier and watching them flop around in in madness. And did you see? Yeah, did did you? I sent you a link. Did you see the video that American Airlines a woman with a little child with asthma, but trying to keep the mask on, turned the plane around. The plane was up in the air, turned around. Disobedient passenger because of one tyrannical um, airline attendant, which was probably its own matter. We could talk about the tyranny of these of these people, but they feel empowered by this mask mandates empower the pettiness. It, it's become a talesman. It's become a fixation. It's some kind of, I don't know, pre-civilizational uh, taboo. I don't know what it is about vaccination with them and the non-vaccinated, but they have leaned onto this. And I, as again, I got vaccinated. I think the risk for most people of not getting vaccinated outweighs the risk of being I had a bad reaction to it. I got an immune problem, and it, maybe it 
That was the reason. My wife got a different brand. She got a little reaction. My daughter got a very serious reaction. Right. We all knew that, but uh, we went ahead and got vaccinated. So I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I get vaccinated with a flu shot every year. But what I'm saying is that when you do not have the data that says that if you were vaccinated, you're 96% protected as it was advertised, right. getting COVID. And I understand you're going to get a less severe case. You'll probably you'll have a less chance of dying. I understand that. But when you hype it as one reason and don't worry about the other person, just get vaccinated, then you don't really care who gets vaccinated. That's not what we were told. That's what we were told. And now just to have all of these manipulations and contortions and retractions and adjustments, it's very discerning. And, a lot, and people are just saying, you know what? I don't have any respect for these people because they don't tell the truth. Right. And when you add the final Philip to it, Joe Biden, I mean, just follow his uh, evolution or devolution. He said in October before the election, I'm not going to get vaccinated. Anything to do with Donald Trump. You can't trust anything that he would advocate. Kamala Harris said, not me. So they basically talked down the, the vaccination. We're not talking about now. We're talking about when millions of people over 65 needed that vaccination, many with comorbidities, because we do know that it really helps people that in that vulnerable right. cohort who are going to die. So people died if they listened to Joe Biden and Kamala right. Then the second thing he said when he got elected, well, there was nobody getting inoculated until I came on the scene. And I'm thinking there were 17 million people in the last month, a million a day because of Operation Warp Speed, you dunce. Why are you saying this? And then he said, the commander in chief is responsible for all those deaths. There were 320,000 people died when I came here because of Donald Trump. Well, nobody who says, well, there's 320 more than that that died right. under your at a greater rate per day of your tenure from the origins of the COVID to the end of the Trump presidency. And so that's where we are. And it's, it's really discerning to, to learn. You really, you can really differ, differentiate what's going on and, it's not about science. It's about, I will say and do anything right now, and I will hide behind pseudoscience for a political partisan purposes. I'm perfectly willing to contradict myself to start with an Orwellian reboot if it's in my political interest. And it has nothing to do with science. That's why I use the quotes, quote unquote, science, they said. And you know who had this right? Scott Atlas. He was demonized. He was vilified. And he said, you know what? When it's all said and done, we're going to have to live with COVID. We hope that it mutates into a less effective right. variant. We want to wear masks if you're vulnerable. We want to vaccinate as many people that it's safe to do so with these experimental vaccinations. But you're not going to save lives by shutting down the health industry, the restaurant industry, the food industry. You're going to kill people. And everybody demonized him. He was right. And yet people have no shame. So let's end this podcast. We promised that we would talk about the seeming lack of shame in our society. And Victor, that, of course, came from the uh, calamities of Afghanistan in August with things collapsing. And there seemed to be from the president to generals, no shame, no admission of guilt, no sense of guilt that they had screwed up terribly, that they were leaving Americans behind, just no shame. And I wanted to get your thoughts on the importance of, sh is shame important in a, to have in a, 
in a, uh, I don't know, well-functioning or at least a functioning society and you know, put on your classics professor cap, maybe talk a little about how the Greeks discussed shame and how they uh, uh, made it central, I think, in some of the, some of the plays. And uh, anyway, is there an absence of shame in our society and how does that harm our society? There is. The Greeks had a word for it, idos, but they didn't have a concept of what we would call guilt, a private feeling that you've done something wrong and you feel bad about it and it's between you and your deity. They felt that that would not be enough to alter your behavior. In other words, if you'd done something wrong that imperiled people, it wasn't enough to confess or to go to church and alleviate that guilt. They felt that wasn't a strong enough deterrent, going to hell or being an apostate or whatever the internal punishment. They didn't necessarily think that was wrong. They were very devout people, the Greek. And we hear constantly in Greek religion that people actually will suffer in the next world based on their behavior in the present. And that's the basis of the pre-Socratic and the later Neoplatonic movements about, and the Socratic movement about the soul and the duality. Okay. But it wasn't strong enough that People had to feel shame. And there were people in the United States who both expressed guilt, but they also expressed shame. When I was growing up out here in rural California, people said things like this, Jack. Well, that Nelson family over there, you know, that young kid's a bad seed. He stole a car. He got in a fight. He got drunk. And he's just brought shame on that family. You know, and we felt that was very terrible. If you wore something that was outlandish or you said something, you shamed your family, you shamed your parents, you shamed your great-grandparents. And that was a coercive, primitive, strong deterrent on your behavior. I know that when I went to school, I studied very hard because I was interested in things at this very rural, kind of less competitive school. But I was also shamed. I was told... Your grandfather in 1909, when he graduated from that high school, he was valedictorian. And your mother graduated and she was student body president. And you have to live up to that. And we all thought that that was coercive. It was psychologically dangerous. It impaired us. Our mental health was at stake. And we adopted not the tragic view, but the therapeutic. And there is no shame. There's no shame about anything. And, you know, we had this Herodotian idea at one time that, you judged your life, whether you were you married, you had children, you had a stable family, and you contributed. I remember my grandfather told me, Reese Davis said, you know what, Victor, when you get older, I was about 12 out there irrigating with him. It's plus and minus, Victor. You're going to have to be held to account. And I don't know what's going to happen hereafter, but did you follow the law or did you break the law? Did you pay your bills or did you welch on your bills? Did you produce children for the next generation or did you not? And that was kind of controversial, that statement. Did you fulfill your obligations? Were you a drag on the society or were you a plus? I started thinking about all the bad things I've done. And he said, now, don't worry. It's not 100% zero. It's 5149. That's all you got to do. You've got to be a plus. Otherwise, it's shameful. And I've never told him this. I think I was 16 and a bunch of guys said, well, you have a little farm and we can drink. And we don't have to worry about the cops. Can we go out there? And I said, well, I don't know. So they all drove out. And I was home and I walked in the dark out to the South 40. We had a little 120 acres of trees. And it was very shady. And everybody drank on a Sunday afternoon. And then 
I don't know. They said, well, we can't take the bottles back home and we don't want to have the bottles in the car because we're underage. We'll just put them here. And they threw them all over. Oh, gosh. All over. And then I picked up some, but it was getting dark. And so I went home and my grandfather said to me the next day, he said, I was out irrigating that Santa Rosa orchard. Now, I saw a lot of beer bottles and wine bottles. And I saw other stuff that bothered me. Do you know anything about that? And I said, well, maybe... And he said, you were part of that group. And I said, I wasn't part of it. Yes, you were. And did you pick them up? And I said, no. And he said, I, you really disappointed me. And I said, I'm sorry. And I went all the way out there and picked up every single one. I said to myself, the next time they want to come out and do stuff like that, I'm going to say no. I was so shamed. Yeah. When you get rid of that, that tool because you feel it's hurtful, and it is hurtful, or uh-huh. it's arbitrary, and it can be arbitrary. And there's, you know, the Scarlet Letter and all of our great writers have warned about shame. There was a great classicist, though, Bernard Williams. He wrote a book, I think it was called Shame and Necessity. And I remember it was a Seder lecture. And his argument was that when we look at the Greeks and we kind of think they're backward because they were a shame culture rather than a guilt culture. And then you look at the degree of civilizational calm they achieved and achievement, maybe Guilt is the pre-civilizational idea, and shame is the more advanced. I'm not talking about, you know, traditional Islamic societies like Afghanistan. You try to stone people or shame them. You have to have compassion. But this anonymous, highly urbanized, disjointed, transient population has no shame because shame is tied to a locale, a place, generations. That's what the whole idea was about this constitutional republic. That's what these early observers, as I said earlier, John Crevacor and Tocqueville, what they said was that this country is built on a middle class with fixed residence. And it's not a big urban transient Paris or London. And what they liked about it was if you do that and you're from some place rather than no place or any place, countries basically, as authors have put it out, those who are somewhere and those can be anywhere. And by they mean as long as they go to London or Paris or San Francisco or New York, they know where the same type of restaurants are the same, same, same. But there's other people say, I'm nothing without my locale because there people know me and I have to follow a particular protocol or I shame people. And that's important. And so I know that maybe it screws people up psychologically according to the therapeutic gospel. But when I say things like I'm saying now, I try not to say things that are crazy or things that are foul or disgusting or laced with profanity simply because not only I don't think it adds to the argument, but more important, it's shameful. And I don't want to go somewhere and somebody said, you know, I listened to you and I could not believe you used, you said that word. And so I think that's important. And when people don't have shame, they're capable of anything. And shame would be a great thing to restore, but you will never have it unless you have a traditional society where people feel roots generations and a sense of place or at yeah. least they have professional loyalties they don't want to shame the profession well i would i would have thought that with the military with some of our leadership they would have a no, sense no, of shame good point you made. Yeah. really good point because we have people who are relieved of command or forced to resign from command but i can't think of a general maybe i'm wrong that is actually resigned from the service except that crazy edwin walker that racist general who He's really political. I think Lee Harvey Oswald tried to shoot him and almost yeah. shoot him. He did resign. And that's a commentary when a kind of a moron like that will at least resign when he can't 
function within the military, but all of these people like Millie will not. I mean, what do you have to do to resign to be a general? Let's take a look very quickly as we end, Jack. Can you violate three statutes that circumscribe the behavior of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs? Yes. Can you violate the civilian control of the military doctrine by making foreign policy or a meeting with unauthorized, making calls that are unauthorized with foreign military leaders? Yes. Can you throw out Article 88 and disparage a commander-in-chief? Yes. Can you basically mislead the country year after year by saying that Afghanistan was going swimmingly well? People underestimate the resilience of the Afghan national government forces. Yes. Can you go up there and basically, for cheap political gain, stigmatize an entire tribe of white males by saying they're prone to white supremacy and white rage? Yes. Can you lie and say that you have to apologize because Donald Trump did something improper by having a photo op while they were tear gassing people out? Yes, you can do all that. And you don't have any shame. Not one iota of shame. Why can't he say, I am sorry. I am no longer effective. I thought I was doing things that would advance the cause of the United States. But when I look back, I was misled. And I did things that were improper, if not illegal. And I'm sorry, and I'm going to resign. I'd have a lot of respect for him. He'll he'll never do that. You know what? Maybe he'll be relieved of command by Joe Biden. But if he were, who just expressed confidence, it's because he thinks in our shameless culture, if he were to resign, the first thing he'd do is have a book deal. And he'd say, you know what? I'm not responsible for Afghanistan. It was Joe Biden did it. Kind of like George Bush, whom I liked. But when he said to George Tenet, you know, George Tenet said, you know, it's a slam dunk on the intelligence. And then after he was so wrong, George Tenet, then he gave them the National Medal, you know? Yeah. I thought, wow, why would you do that after he gave you the wrong advice and wrong intelligence? And maybe it was because he didn't want to get on the wrong side in the post-career of George Tenet. Yeah. Well, that should be another topic for another day about about top administration officials writing writing books, uh, especially speechwriters. I just don't get it. Well, Victor, that's about all the time we have, uh, except uh, we'll thank uh, our listeners who do leave reviews at iTunes. I've mentioned on other podcasts, uh, we have a rate of an average of 5.0. Now, that's kind of impossible, but it's impossible. It's 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 high. It's four point nine 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 nine. So it averages it, um, you know, becomes five. Very few non five. Uh, star reviews for this, uh, the podcasts that we do, the classicists, the culturalists, and the traditionalists. Many people leave written reviews. And one from the other day is by, I think it's CPT Lou. So I think it's Captain Lou, who uh, titles his remarks, a giant in the corner of everybody in middle America. And he writes, I always look forward to listening to VDH. Seems to me he is the best of only a handful, exaggerated, of scholars who uses empirical evidence for reasoning in all matters, political, financial, cultural, military, and science, rather than ideology or emotions. P.S. Love Victor's inclusion of blue-collared worker first responders in his essays and his lack of patience for poor military leadership and his lack of patience in media hypocrisy. Thank you for that, Captain Lou, and for the others who leave uh, messages. We do read them. Uh, 
encourage again our our listeners to uh, subscribe to my little thing, uh, Civil Thoughts. Uh, go to civilthoughts.com. Totally free weekly newsletter. Just you know, a handful of suggested readings that you may like. Victor Hanson, S-O-N, VictorHanson.com. Uh, consider uh, uh, subscribing to the premium service. That gives you access to all the original material that Victor writes, which does not appear anywhere else except on VictorHanson.com. Again, also a link for his book, forthcoming book, The Dying Citizen. That will be out in two or three weeks. October 5th is the publication date. Victor, thanks once again for sharing your uh, wisdom with us and we will be back again soon with another episode of the classicist part of the umbrella of podcasts of the victor davis hansen show thank you very much thank you jack and thank everybody for listening again and i hope to be with you soon